most of us as veterinary professionals may have heard the don't self-deploy as the only intersection that we hear about with disasters. If you haven't heard that, essentially what it means is don't go in on your own. Don't Mm -hmm. decide that you're going to go into an incident area to do something because you think that you need to. And that's going to be really hard for us as veterinary professionals because we are geared to help. We know how to help. But this don't self-deploy is a really important piece of keeping everybody safe and letting all those communication pathways and the other organizations that are working do their job. Instead, get involved with the team early. That is Dr. Kassara Andre, the veterinary medical director of the Rocky Mountain Medical Reserve Corps and the branch director of the Front Range Veterinary Medical Reserve Corps. And this is the VIN Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast. I'm Jordan Benchia, VIN Foundation's executive director. Join me and our co-host and VIN Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories, stories that connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible by individuals like you who donate to the VIN Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Welcome, Kasara. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jordan. I'm really excited to be here, but also talk about this particular topic. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here as well. And Dr. Kassara Andre is with the Medical Reserve Corps, and she has just such an interesting perspective on the profession and is so boots on the ground doing so much to help colleagues and the animals that we all love. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation. And where I love to start is sort of tell us about your journey to veterinary medicine. Was there sort of an aha moment where you knew this was the right profession for you? Were you one of those five-year-olds where you just thought, I love puppies and I'm doing it? Or how did it come about for you? (laughs) I I was definitely not one of those five, six-year-olds who, this is what I'm doing. This is is my life. I know I'm on the right path. I was actually studying to be a forensic anthropologist through most of- Ooh, very interesting. Still just a, a love and a passion of mine in so many regards. But Mm -hmm. my I I need to take this path was when my own cat needed something. She was uh, really struggling with some IBD, some behavioral issues. And I I I didn't feel like I had the I didn't have enough information to be able to do the treatment that I needed to for her to kind of understand what the veterinarian was saying was going on and needed to happen. And she was definitely my heart cat. (laughs) And so it was just a decision of, I really need to figure out what this means and what I'm supposed to be doing for her. And I will say that that little, that little kitty, Maddie was her name, Mm -hmm. has for such a majority of my professional life been the steerer, the guide. Sort of your true north there. Absolutely. When I decided to do acupuncture, when I decided to do rehab, when I decided to do cannabis stuff, it was because she needed yeah. something. And I think most anyone associated with the veterinary profession has a story like that of one animal that has just right. changed their lives. So when was that? Wh- what rough age were you when that when that happened with Maddie? Mm, 
I was about uh, probably 17 or so. I started mm-hmm. college really young, so I'd already been in college for a couple of years. So it was just about time for me to declare my major, decide which direction I was going to go, and really could make that moment. Uh, all right, I'm headed down the medicine route. What do I need? Yeah. What do I need to do? Let's get it done. Wow. Yeah, they're uh, the animals that just capture our hearts, right? <laughs> Amazing. It is absolutely I mean, incredible. Yeah, my dog is definitely my first and only dog, and she definitely is my heart dog. I mean, I love my chickens and I love my bees, but <laughs> she is my she is my heart dog. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, where did you end up going to veterinary school, and how was that experience for you? So, I actually went my first year in veterinary school in New Zealand at Massey mm-hmm. University. Um, I had just a few credits left on my undergraduate degree and decided to do a year of vet school in the Southern Hemisphere because of semester mm-hmm. flip flops so I could do those rather than finishing my bachelor's. So I don't have a bachelor's and then just went straight into, into vet school. So I did the first year in New Zealand and then came um, back to the States and then went to school in Virginia. So Virginia, Maryland Regional College. Wow, that's so cool. I didn't. So you are the first story that we've talked to about somebody that didn't finish the bachelor's and then go on to the veterinary. And I love how you've taken that sort of different path because it just shows people, I think so often we are so focused on it has to be this, it has to be this, it has to be this, right? But really, yeah. there are so many options out there. Especially and in veterinary medicine. We just are in a yeah. field where anything you can dream up <laughs> There's something. And that's amazing. That. Yes. That's amazing. And I think people, I, I hope that our listeners or somebody that might be thinking about the veterinary profession can listen and think, oh, wow, that's like an option. I didn't even know that was an option, right? Mm-hmm. We so often get so stuck in that. So, so you Massey for a year and then Virginia, Maryland. What was your first job out of veterinary school? Uh, well, while I was in vet school here in the U.S., I actually commissioned with the military. So I was an uh, officer for the Army as a veterinarian. So I was that mm-hmm. was my first job. <laughs> I was an, an officer for the military as a veterinarian. Wow. Okay. And then how did you, so how did you get from where, from an officer in the army to where you are now? And if you can share with us and your, our listeners, your current role. Absolutely. Um, for me, military was such a, a life shaping profession, shaping experience. There are so many important pieces of my leadership style, things that I choose and um, path that I sort of put my current businesses on that are directly informed because of some of the stuff I learned in the military, but it also really grew my love of working dogs. So military working dogs, patrol dogs, um, scent detection. I love that. Dogs. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's hard to not to be around working animals and not just develop this passion for them for mm-hmm. animals all across the board. So uh, I transitioned from the active side of military to reserve, which is when I moved to Colorado. And so I taught for the ROTC group for a while, um, just leadership organizational skills and mm-hmm. was really having an opportunity to fill in some gaps, I'd say, of what I had found missing while I was working for the military. So I had my vet school training, knew what I needed to about general practice, surgery. But when you're working with working animals, it's sport medicine, just like on the human Mm -hmm. side. And I really Mm -hmm. felt that there was just a piece of my medicine that was missing. I I needed something that was easier or softer, I guess, than a non-steroidal. We definitely didn't need surgery. You know, we know these dogs in and out. And so I was really beginning to be interested in acupuncture, 
rehab massage. Um, I wasn't yet working with cannabis, but um, that was just, it was a piece of, I really need something for these patients that I don't feel like I have. And so then when I moved to Colorado, to the reserve side, I had a lot more time to explore what I wanted to. And even though I've resigned my commission now, that's still the path that I'm on. So integrative holistic modalities. Um, I have a couple of veterinary based businesses that are yes, based out of Colorado, but we consult globally, particularly on cannabis education mm-hmm. and things like that. So I would say that, that so interesting. Yeah. just the experience of being part of a team, um, having mm-hmm. a really strong leadership around you and, and learning what that means. It's, it's a part of everything that I do still. Well, and I can imagine that probably those skills that you learned in the military, as you can hear my dog barking in the background. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll show up in a minute and join us. Okay, that, that's the great thing about working in the veterinary profession. Pretty much everybody's going to have some sort of animal sound yeah. in the background. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I can imagine that working in the military probably taught you a lot of really beneficial skills and processes and systems that are really helpful in your business and your career today, right? Because I feel like those sorts of practical skills, they, I don't, it doesn't seem to me that they're teaching in the, in veterinary school. And I think that it's very helpful when you're running any sort of type of business and when you're also dealing with people, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And it was from um, both directions. I saw a lot of things that I learned I didn't want to do. It was, Mm -hmm. you learn from the bad experiences just as much as the good. Absolutely. It's on you to decide what you're going to compost it into. What are you going to take out with you? And Mm -hmm. I I have definitely brought a lot of pieces out. I will say that um, there aren't a lot of things that were harder than creating a convoy plan and getting your soldiers <laughs> I was like oh I've done this before I got this it's all relative <laughs> and then it also just teaches you a degree of emotional resiliency that I think is really important mm-hmm. in any career but particularly veterinary field um I had some really not fun commanders <laughs> that I learned to navigate and definitely when I got out and started doing some private practice and beginning my own businesses it was, there were quite a few times when I would just think to myself, you know, this situation is not as scary as my right. last answer. So, no, I'm good. Right. I'm good. This <laughs> is fine. I mean, it's those range of possibilities, mm-hmm. right, that we have. And then it's just relative of, oh, hmm, compared to that, I'm yeah, good. I'm That's good. okay. <laughs> so what is your current role in the veterinary profession now? I am the director of a couple of companies. So the ones that are my own, um, we run Cultivate, which is a co-working community. Um, essentially, we support entrepreneurship among healers. And because I'm a veterinarian, we have a lot of strong intersections in veterinary medicine, but that could be across the board. Um, we have a massage school that I wrote the curriculum for and am the current director of. And we have a consulting practice for cannabis use of safe and effective use of cannabis and animals. Um, and that's a, a, a really fun one to work with. Cannabis is definitely a global phenomenon. Right. And so it's fun to really work with colleagues from across the globe. And then mm-hmm. um, I we have started a nonprofit, Care for the Healer, in 2020. There was a lot of just need that has been coming up that we wanted to deal with. And then also in 2020, 
which kind of is the one who relates most to this conversation. I'm the, the director of the Front Range Veterinary Medical Reserve Corps. So that is a volunteer position. And essentially, we are one of two veterinary reserve corps in the state of Colorado. And our unit deals with everything that's to the east of the Continental Divide. That's kind of the area that we serve. And that sounds this like quite a big job for a volunteer position. It's it's a lot for a volunteer <laughs> position. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's not like I serve on a nonprofit board and I attend a meeting once a month. That seems much more hands-on and probably most specifically with the Marshall Fire that yes. just happened. Yes, absolutely. We are a unit that has been around for a while, but not really too active or, or too functional really until we decided to reinitiate or re get ourselves restarted in 2020. So technically we're an older unit, but in terms of processes we already have, the team that's built, we're pretty new and we're pretty young. Mm -hmm. And yeah, absolutely. Marshall Fire was out of the blue, unexpected, uh, right. a lot to dump on any team and particularly mm -hmm. one that is finding its feet and getting the processes in place and figuring out right. our volunteer base. And yeah, it was more than a full-time job for the past month, absolutely. So, I mean, most people in 2020 were working on sourdough starters and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, refining their Netflix list. And you started multiple, multiple organizations and a nonprofit and became in this director role. So... <laughs> Help. I, I want to touch on the Marshall Fire, but I want to go back for a little bit and maybe help our audience because I was really ignorant to this is, can you explain what the Medical Reserve Corps is and how that works? Yes, absolutely. Uh, as a whole, the Medical Reserve Corps is a national system. So essentially a national group of volunteers, but importantly, organized locally. Now, mm -hmm. our unit has both medical volunteers and non-medical from the support side, logistics side, and that's an important component to have both pieces. But what we essentially do is connect all the grassroots local resources to those who might need it. So um, in an incident where state, federal responds, they're not going to know who all the equine vets are in the area. They're not mm -hmm. going to know, I can get hay over here. You know, I can right. board horses here. That's just not we are the know what's available locally and make sure that we connect them to the right places peace in some of the right. faster incidences so for some reason i've been under the impression and this could be completely incorrect that anybody that's in the reserve corps is former military is that correct or not no um i, okay. I do find um quite a few of our team have military backgrounds i I think it's a, a format and a style that lets us have some common communication paths, mm, common mm -hmm. terminology, common ideas. Um, it's really useful when your team has the same ideas of, um, we need a logistics officer, we need an operations officer, we need a right. planning officer. And that kind of makes things fall into place a little bit easier. But a lot of our members have no military background um, and are members of the community, veterinary or otherwise, animal lovers, we have a ton of those. And it's just all pitching in because of that community-based. What are we doing right. to make sure our community is prepared? So in advance of a disaster, mm -hmm. in the case of a disaster, depending on what needs to happen, and that changes in every situation, but then also the resiliency piece. And mm -hmm. that's a big part that's come up for Marshall Fire. Outside of the incident, past the incident, what are the effects? What are the 
sequela of what happened and then how do you make sure your community recovers and then is prepared for the next one so that resiliency angle is a really important piece of what we're trying to do that's really interesting and how so it sounds like the resiliency plus the community communications play a really important role yes yes absolutely and i think and are you Go ahead. <laughs> I think anyone listening who is already part of the Venno community just knows that we have our own jargon. We have our own <laughs> way of thinking about ourselves and our industry and our patients and our clients. And that communication between the different groups, between the different sets of jargon is really important. Anytime, anytime you're trying to coordinate multiple people, you need to be speaking the same language, but particularly right. in light of a disaster like Marshall Fire, when everyone's mm-hmm. looking for, for information, what should I do? How can I help? What comes next? Just being able to have clear lines of communication that everyone knows where to find them and we're all speaking the same language is essential for success of any of any mission, no matter what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I am sort of this um, obsessed with clear communication. <laughs> Because I just am such a staunch believer that, you know, miscommunication, just the smallest thing does everything from in relationships to start wars. Absolutely. And, you know, I was talking to somebody recently and they were saying, okay, well, I'm going to tell this person that we're going to go a different route. And I, I said, you know, instead of saying a different route, people innately don't like change, right? So their defenses come out. And I thought, what, what if we just said, I think of an approach that might be most helpful to our community is this, this, this. And it is it is a different route, but it's just how you word those little things, right? And I'm always checking myself day in and day out, professionally, personally, in my relationships and all of them. How am I communicating? Because that is so vitally important. And especially, I think that we've seen with COVID, with the pandemic, communications all over the map from all directions, right? And I can imagine how vitally important that, I mean, I know how vitally that important that is. I live in an area that's had um, some extreme disasters in the last few years, and that lack of clear communication also impacts how the community reacts, the stress levels, what they do, it can potentially save or cause lives, right? Absolutely. and so I, I think that's so, so important. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm glad that that's something that you're focused on because it's, yes. it's so important. And I know it's also probably really not easy, right? And people using, like you, you mentioned terminology, you know, that is something that is so important. So along with terminology and clear communications, what are some misconceptions you hear about the Medical Reserve Corps? I would say that the biggest misconception misconception we're dealing with currently, which is informed slightly by how new of a, of a restart we are about mm-hmm. how we have a lot of work to do to become embedded in our community. And it's a piece that we're excited to have an opportunity to work on. The, so probably the biggest thing we're, we're dealing with now is the concept that the Medical Reserve Corps activates for a disaster right then and mm-hmm. not really recognizing the work that goes into building the team so that you have trained with your colleagues, so that you have the certifications you need to go into a disaster incident area to keep yourself safe, to keep your colleagues safe, and then also do mm-hmm. whatever your professional role is. So I think that it's just very easy anytime there's something that's emotionally traumatic for us all to go into react mode. And as Ben, mm-hmm. we're really good at that. We are really good on the ER floor in knowing what needs to be done and being able to respond. But when you do that as a team and then you try to 
also interact with other organizations and groups that may have different communications or different goals or just be working from a different angle. If you haven't trained with that team ahead of time, that's when it can get a little bit dangerous and confusing. So that long-term commitment, yes, but just interest in what's going on from a disaster preparedness um, perspective is probably the biggest misconception that we find and are actively trying to change. It's about getting involved with the team now so that you know who you're working with, who you're going to deploy with, and then that you know what your actual job is going to be once you're on the ground. Yeah, I think that we as a country, from a U.S. perspective, are very reactive. And the idea of being proactive is, you know, not so interesting to a majority (laughs) of people. (laughs) I mean, we can look at that from a health perspective. We can look at that in a lot of different ways. But I can imagine that probably those misconceptions come because it's just, oh, you're there and then you just react. But Mm -hmm. to your point, there's a lot of proaction that needs to go into that so that the reaction is really on point and actually helpful, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think those can, yeah, go ahead. It can be really hard when you're reacting to a lot. And I think that that has mm-hmm. been come up so much over the past two years. Everyone's life is so full, not just yep. from work or just from family, but then pandemic on top of that, there there's so much information to process. You have to actively fight to make room in your mind to just have a little bit of space to think about what, What's coming next? What can I change in 10 seconds that's going to make right. the next 10 days significantly better? But it's it's hard. It's an, It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of teamwork to actually put that thought in ahead of time. Right, right. So we, you touched on this a little bit, but when we actually initially connected based on the Marshall Fire, but... Mm-hmm. Big, you know, speaking of misconceptions, um, I live in an area where there are a lot of fires. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> um, and so I think that because we have these news cycles, which are just so bombarding, yeah. um, you know, there used to be a news crawl on the bottom of CNN. That's like, I don't know who gets information there now. That's like <laughs> old already, right? So, <laughs> so I would, can you give us an update on the Marshall Fire and kind of for those listeners that might not know about it, can you give a little summary about what the Marshall Fire was and where the situation stands today? Yes, absolutely. The Marshall Fire occurred in Boulder County of Colorado, for those of you who aren't too familiar with the, the specific geographic area. It was a wildfire, essentially, at a time when there were some very, very high winds. So up to, I think, mm-hmm. 100 mile an hour winds. Um, and I, they're still under investigation what the actual cause was, but the most common thought is that a, a downed power line just hit a spark and it's been really dry this year and the winds. So mm-hmm. what we really saw was a huge wildfire, but in the middle of a very urban area. And this was something that took everybody by surprise. I've heard this from every disaster response group. When we sit in their meetings, like everyone just sort of says the same thing. You don't expect fires to really jump highways. Usually those are pretty effective fire breaks. You know, you would in Colorado, we're more used to fires on the Western slope or in a pasture land. And so for it to be right in the middle of a very, very urban area was shocking, but it also meant that who needed to be evacuated for uh, us kind of listening to this and talking about this, the population density of the animals in that area is different than we would see in other wildfires. So there mm-hmm. was a lot of a lot of fa- factors. It was very, very fast moving, destroyed so many, so many homes in a very, very short period of time. All those things make the Marshall Fire very unique. But at the same time, Boulder County 
has unfortunately or fortunately knows how to respond to disasters a lot. We had the floods, you know, a couple of years ago, and there's definitely fires frequently. So in terms of responding to the incident, the county, so the county, state, federal, I think I have not heard anyone who wanted for better there. I think everyone did a spectacular job as an MRC. That's wonderful. We were not even a necessary piece. So Boulder County had the resources they need needed to be able to handle the incident itself. Our unit has been more involved in listening to, assessing, trying to brainstorm on the consequences to the community. What mm-hmm. now happens to those families who are displaced? Where do their pets right. go for medical care? How do we actually do a census of the animals that were lost, found, recovered? That's information that we as practitioners need to know, not just animal lovers and and part of a community. But this type of incident is not going to go away. We're going to see more and more types of fire, flood that are in very, very urban areas. And so as medical practitioners, there's some data that we're trying to gather now rather quickly so that we don't lose it. Because we want to know what were the medical injuries, what's the consequence of medical need that was going to take be taken care of, and now the family had to move, and now it's not taking just all those pieces, behavioral health. We want to know those those answers to it. Uh, so from the Marshall Fire incident itself, that's really beginning to be closed down. Um, state and federal are still present there, but evacuation orders have been lifted. Families are able to go back um, if, if they have a house left still. But there's a long-term support from the community that is is really important now because there's so much that's changed in so many people's right. lives. The community being present for them, it's this long-term recovery piece that I think a lot of people don't think about, but it's so essential mm-hmm. to make sure those humans and their animals continue to be okay. And what was the date of the Marshall Fire? So January 30th, 31st, so New Year's Eve was really the peak of... December 31st. Okay. Yes, sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have Linear Last week. Is a little bit, a little bit crazy in my mind. Um, yeah, so, so essentially a New Year's Eve fire. Okay, okay. Um, so do you see, is there any room, I mean, it seems like what you've said is that everything went as well as it could based mm-hmm. on the situation. Do you see any room for improvement in communication Absolutely. during a disaster such as the Marshall Fire? Absolutely. We we are consistently hearing in our debriefs and our after action reviews with our team and the community that people were not finding the information they needed, not knowing mm-hmm. where to go, how to assess the information to know whether it was accurate or not, what that meant for right. them. Can I go help? What should I do? Should I leave? Should I stay? Some of those questions. So yes, absolutely. We also, as a team and, and a community, we've been talking about what can we do preemptively? You know, we mm-hmm. want to be able to effectively respond to the disaster itself, but part of our role as the, as the MRC is to prepare and to make sure that there are not lives lost, animal lives lost. And so we're beginning to think about evacuation networks. Can we establish groups within neighborhoods that if you're not home, someone's still going to come get your animal? There's a there's so many things that I think are possible for us to make significant changes, but it takes a lot of brainstorming and it will have to mm-hmm. be unique solutions. So it takes some dedicated brainstormers. All right, I'm here to problem solve. What can we do? Right. Because we're going to need an out of the box solution. Mm hmm. And 
if colleagues want to learn more about the Medical Reserve Corps um, or how they can get involved from the veterinary aspect, we're going to put all of that in the episode notes. I think we're going to also share some links about Marshall Fire in case somebody wants to learn more about that. Um, how, if, if somebody wants to get involved, though, are, are there opportunities and are there opportunities outside of Colorado if there is a veterinary colleague that thinks, oh, that'd be kind of cool in all their spare time, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, you know, might think that that might be something that they might want to do, or maybe they're selling a practice and looking mm-hmm. for a way to stay engaged. What sort of opportunities are there across the country or internationally? So uh, nationally, across, across the U.S., there are multiple MRC groups. Now, they all look a little bit different because it is meant to be a reflection of the local grassroots piece. So sometimes mm-hmm. you'll find the MRC under a humane society or a different nonprofit. So you may need to look a little bit around in your state to kind of be able to figure out how to connect there. But most states have at least one MRC. They may not have a veterinary MRC, but they will definitely have ways that those grassroots resources and supplies can get connected. In Colorado, um, we are still in the process of making sure we are easily accessible to the community and kind of struggling with that newness versus Mm -hmm. information that needs to be readily available. For our volunteers, we start everyone off with just an interest survey. Why Why do you want to be interested? There are so many, so many roles to fill. You could be a veterinarian that says, I don't want to volunteer as a veterinarian. You know, I do that in my (laughs) day life. I don't actually want to do it here and come be a logistics officer. Help us do the planning of how we get animals from one point to the other make sure that we have supplies when we need to. So it is it is possible for everyone to be involved in the capacity that they want to. I will say that the MRC is not for everybody. Boots on ground is not for everyone. That's some pretty traumatic stuff that you may be exposed to. And that needs to be thought about really carefully from a mental health, emotional health perspective, debriefing from that, making sure you're taking care of yourself. But just from communication standpoint, social media, um, logistics, all of those, there's so much need for the community just to lean in. So we start with an interest survey and I've given you the link for that one and hopefully people will find us of interest and want to reach out and say hi. And then we essentially ask everyone to onboard with a state database. It does a background check, gives some okay. basic training. And once you're onboarded, um, kind of in those basic requirements, then we have some veterinary specific training that we ask our volunteers to go through. How do I handle large animal in the field, small animal in the field? Field euthanasia is a big thing that we talk about. Personal go right. bag, making sure that you're safe to go out in the field. Your professional go bag, making sure you have the tools that you need while you are out in the field. Um, debriefs, um, priority triage, how you do all of those pieces. So it. Field medicine is different than clinic medicine, but it cannot, it's very, very fun. So there's room for and everything. I imagine probably really rewarding as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I so appreciate your time, Kasara. Is there anything else that you want to leave our audience with today? I think I would say to close that most of us as veterinary professionals have, may have heard the don't self-deploy as the only intersection that we hear about with disasters. And so if if you haven't heard that, essentially what it means is don't go in on your own. Don't Mm -hmm. decide that you're going to go into an incident area to do something because you think that you need to. And that's gonna be really hard for us as veterinary professionals because we are geared to help. We know how to help. 
But this don't self-deploy is a really important piece of keeping everybody safe and letting all those communication pathways and the other organizations that are working do their job. Instead, get involved with the team early. Start now Mm -hmm. before there's an incident so that you're training with your team. You have the credentials that you need to be able to do boots on ground if you want to, to be able to go out and save an animal that needs you to be present. So prepare in advance. Kind of, that's been a little bit of a theme throughout this entire conversation. Think ahead of time (laughs) about what you might want to do and make sure that you have that training in advance. We do that for everything. You know, we wouldn't do surgery without making sure we were qualified for it or knew what was going on. Disaster is the same thing. It it requires a a set of skills, a set of training. So don't self-deploy is definitely a thing. But there are a lot of ways for people to get involved as long as you start early before the actual incident comes up. That's a great answer. And I think hopefully, you know, with the information that we'll provide in the episode notes, people will be able to explore if that's something that interests them. Absolutely. Uh, So one of my favorite questions that I love to ask at the end is, do you have a secret talent or something that you enjoy doing that others might not know about? I mean, it clearly Mm. sounds like you're extremely busy, but are there additional things? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I will say that, yes, I I am busy, but I can't imagine doing anything else. I absolutely Mm -hmm. love every aspect of my professional life. And as we said in the beginning, there are so many things that you can do in veterinary medicine sky's the limit. If you can dream it up, right? There's a, there's a need for it. I would say that probably the thing most people don't know about me is that I'm a synesthete, which may be something that um, a lot of people haven't encountered. It essentially means that some of my senses are, are mixed. So synesthesia is actually really common. The more, most common one that you'll hear about are, is visual synesthesia. If you hear the number seven, you'll see a purple seven. And so some of those senses get mixed in the background. I'm a kinesthetic synesthete. So a lot of my interactions with the world have a physical sensation to me, but it also makes me really good at seeing analogies in between things. So it's, it's definitely so interesting. something that I love about myself, but has been merged really intimately with some of what I do in a professional context. That is f- first time. We, I mean, I'm, I'm used to like knitting or like karaoke. <laughs> I love that is so cool. That is my like thing that I like to do. I I love to do archery. That's a really fun. Oh, you love to do archery. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Another totally cool thing. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you are so fascinating as a person. And I just, I'm thank you so much for everything that you're doing for our animals and for the profession and for the community. Um, I think that we're definitely better off with you in it. And thank, and you. thank you so much for your service and Absolutely. giving back and supporting so much. We are very grateful. So, and thanks for coming on here and spending your time. You know, I think time is one of the most valuable things we have. And so thank you for choosing to spend it with us here. Absolutely. So much fun for my side to be able to talk about. And I will say that all the ways that I've served and continue to serve have been an honor. I love our veterinary mm-hmm. community and I wouldn't pick to do anything else. That's wonderful. I love it. I love hearing how when people love, love, love what they do. Absolutely. Because I feel that way and I just feel so grateful every day. So mm-hmm. thank that's you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kasara. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of the Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.